Amen. Great job. You need to testify more. All right. Go ahead and open your Bibles if you want to to Luke 19. Luke chapter 19. And I'm going to pick up on a topic that Maddie just mentioned. And she mentioned the idea of delighting in God. And the question I want to ask you is, what do you truly love about Jesus? What about Jesus makes you delight in Him? Is it His compassion? His meekness? His power? Is it His presence by His Spirit with you? Is it His love? What is it about Jesus that you love? Luke, in chapter 19, has something that he wants to show all of us that is lovely about Jesus. We need to keep this in mind. When you're picturing who Christ is, we want to make sure you're loving the Jesus of the Bible. Luke is very clear on something that he finds lovely about Jesus our Lord. And it is his mission. It is his mission that we should taste and see that the Lord is good. Luke says this in a dramatic fashion. Luke will say the word, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And that aspect of Christ's glory doesn't really sit in until we realize our own lostness and the lostness of the world around us. As I was reading this, I was reminded of a time a while back when we were visited here at TCC by one of our international workers, our missionary family, came to hang out with us. And uh, I was hanging out with the dad, David, and we decided we were going to give the uh, moms a day off and the men were going to watch the kids. So he had a couple of kids at that time and I had some kids. And so we decided, foolishly, to take them to Marbles Museum because I thought wrongly it would be a contained space <laughs> that I could easily watch the kids, forgetting how hectic it was on the weekend. So I went there with David. And we had things pretty much under control as we were watching the different levels and watching the kids play. And he had the time, one of his girls was three years old. And we were chatting, and I don't get to see him much, and we were having a good talk. And it was just 30 seconds that I glanced away. I didn't look into his eyes, but I was distracted. And we were talking, and then I looked back, and there is no daughter of David. She is gone. She's vanished. And man, in that moment, and the next moment, and in the next minute, five minutes is a long time to lose a kid. Not for me, for David. David lost him, his kid. <laughs> but we were, <laughs> we were there, and I searched up. We searched down. We grabbed the Marbles employees. We searched everywhere. Finally, Again, five minutes later, finally, we circled back to one of the little hobbles, a little plaything, playground, and we found her in there just happily playing away. She was fine, but she was in a place that we'd already been by. Man, I remember the intensity 
of that search. Just the fact that nothing mattered when we had a missing child. And that is the intensity with which Christ came to seek and to save the lost. Luke is going to show us this and much more in a couple of stories today, beginning in chapter 19. Let's go ahead and dive into the text, thinking on the fact that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Look at the first one, Luke 19.1. This story is found in no other gospel. It's unique to Luke. He starts it by saying, Jesus entered Jericho and he was passing through there. Now Luke has 24 chapters, nine of which tells the story of Jesus headed to Jerusalem. A big part of the book is about his journey to Jerusalem. So he's not going to stop for long here in Jericho. Jerusalem will be the city in which he would redeem the world. So he's headed there with a purpose. The final battle will be fought in Jerusalem. But if you remember from the Old Testament, the city of Jericho is mentioned there. Joshua goes into Jericho, and it's famous for the way it fell. Remember the walls crumbled down by the power of God. And you might forget what happened in Jericho was that God saved an unlikely person there. He saved a prostitute who wasn't a worshiper of God at first. But when she saw the power and the majesty of God in Jericho, she turned. And it seems like in today's story, some things haven't changed. God wants to show us the vastness of his mercy. Look in verse 2. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. That word means pure. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. So now Luke introduces this unsavory character in Zacchaeus. He's a villain, if you would. He's a villain because of what he does. Uh, being a tax collector in Palestine was a negative class distinction. It was almost like if I told you, here's Zacchaeus the slumlord. It would be someone who makes a profit off of taking advantage of people financially. And that's what the tax collectors did. They made a deal with the Roman Empire. He got the bid and he was able to lay heavy taxes on the Jewish people. He was a traitor. He was a greedy leech on society. Here was someone that people did not like. But Luke introduces him here. He did have one thing going for him in verse 3. Check it out. Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was. So let's give credit where credit's due. Like the blind man from last week in Luke, Zach here is eager to see Jesus. But he did have an issue, the text says. But on account of the crowd, he couldn't see Jesus because Zacchaeus was small in stature. So really short guy, really big crowd, that's a problem. Look what happens. Verse 4. So Zacchaeus runs on ahead and he climbs up into a sycamore tree to see him. That's Jesus. For Jesus was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and he came down and he received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. Saying, He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. 
And I want you to try to picture this scene in your mind's eye like a movie. Picture a bird's eye view and you see a dusty street there in Jericho and a crowd of people moving slowly down the street. At the center is the man stands out because of his presence and his power, not because of his appearance, but because of the essence of who he is. And everybody revolves around this person just moving down the street. And then you can see on the outskirts of the crowd a smaller, well-dressed man. And he's trying to get into that center, but he can't. And he's doing almost childlike. He's, he's hopping, and he can't see over. He's got good hops, but they're not enough to look over. So you see him as you're watching down. He looks ahead, and he cuts a corner, knowing that the crowd is going to round. And when he cuts the corner, he finds a tree, and he, he picks a good one. It's a wide base, like a mushroom. It has branches, and some of the branches hang out over the road. And you see him scamper up. And as he does, the crowd turns the corner and they actually pass under the tree. And then as you zoom in in your mind's eye on the face of Jesus, he's leading this crowd and then he stops. And then somewhat reflectively, he pauses and then he looks up. He sees that man in the tree and he calls out. And when he does, redemption echoes in his voice as he says, Zacchaeus! Come on down here. I want to meet with you today. And as you look at the scene, you notice the dissonance in the facial expressions, right? Most people there are grumbling. They're frustrated. They're bitter. They're saying, why is Jesus going to meet with that loser? Nobody likes him. He's the worst of us. Surely Jesus doesn't want to meet with that guy. To the contrast, in Zacchaeus' face, as he comes down, he has the shine like the kid who gets the ice cream before the broccoli. He's got the shine, the unmitigated joy that Jesus has chosen him. And that's the scene that Luke gives us today. And the first point I want to make from the text is this. As we think about Jesus coming to seek and to save the lost, who he saves might surprise you. Who Jesus saves might just surprise you. What I mean by that is, you may be willing to agree that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, but don't assume you know the targets. Okay? Because if we learn anything in Luke, it's that Jesus is going to surprisingly seek out the destitute, the hated, the filthy, the downtrodden, the thief, the poor, and the immoral. And Zacchaeus here is no exception. Now, unlike the story last week of the blind beggar, here in verse 18, Jesus is the initiator. He goes after Zacchaeus. Last week, it was a blind man calling out, going after Jesus. Here we see a turn. Jesus intentionally pursues Zacchaeus, he controls the situation. He's seeking out the worst of the worst. And in doing so, he's going to make a point here. And get this. Luke's going to mention tax collectors in his book six times in his gospel. So he keeps bringing up the worst person in society almost six times over and over in his gospel. And every single time, the stereotypical villain 
are actually seen more as heroes. Luke 3, 12, it's the tax collectors who are coming to be baptized. Earlier in Luke 5, 27, Jesus calls Levi the tax collector, and Levi actually leaves everything to follow Jesus. Luke 7, 29, tax collectors are the ones saying, God, your way is right. Luke 15, 1, it's the tax collectors who gather to actually hear Jesus teach. And then most dramatically, in Luke 18.10, it's the tax collector who humbly goes to the temple to confess his own sin. The gospel is for outcasts. And we should not be surprised when they actually respond to the good news of Jesus. Speaking about being surprised, my son and I surprised one another this week in our house. He had a birthday, so I went to my son like a good father. He's turning 15, right? If you don't know, that means I'm now looking down the barrel of a learner's permit. So I go to my son, and I say, son, we're going to have to drive together now. So I think it would be a great time to go ahead and get you a new car if I'm going to have to drive with you. And he turns to me and he says, Pops, nothing would make me happier. That surprised me. So I got him nothing. <laughs> We're very literal in our household. <laughs> By the way, he unfriended me and unfollowed me. But more seriously, I read an article this week by a man named Sean DeMars. And Sean has a prison ministry in a county in Alabama. And what he does is he goes into the prison and he shares the gospel, but he starts with creation. And he tells the story of how Adam and Eve were actually created to rule the earth. Kings and queens serving under the ultimate sovereign God himself as our representative. That's how he starts his gospel and he shares a story about what happened to him one night. I just want to read this story. It's amazing. After he was done sharing, he said an inmate named Christy came up to him and began, and began crying on his shoulder after their Sunday service there in the county jail. And she said, I've always known I was bad, said the inmate. I never doubted that. My daddy called me ugly every day of my life. Even the days he molested me. My boyfriends treated me even worse than that. And the decent women in society looked at me like I was trash because of the fast life that I was living on the outside. And then Sean said he looked at her, understandingly trying not to cry as she was sharing this. But then she said this, after listening to him talk about the glories of the gospel, she said, but I swear... I have never had anyone tell me I was supposed to be more than a loser. Sean said he began to cry and she wiped her own eyes on the collar of her striped jumper. And she said, do you really think that I could be a queen? Do you really think God could make me like Eve before she sinned? And Sean said, yes. It's exactly what Jesus does. 
takes wretches and makes them into royalty. And only he has that transformative power. Only Jesus has such a glorious mission sent from God to do. And so our question is, how does your life mission align with Jesus's? Who lives on the outskirts of society here in Raleigh as an outcast? 2018, still a young pup. Who might God be wanting you to pursue this year? Some of you might want to work with at-risk youth. We can facilitate that here at TCC. You might want to be introduced to an international college student who is on the fringes of American culture. Maybe it's an elderly neighbor, an inmate at the prison. Maybe it's the bratty kid in your neighborhood. Guy whose never, dad is never home. Maybe it's that kid. I guarantee you, if I ask my family, who, who in our neighborhood do you think Christ would seek after because he would be most glorified by their transformation? I think everybody in our family would answer the same household. Now, some houses might answer my household. <laughs> but I think you know who the downtrodden are in your sphere of influence. Who are they and how would God want you to pursue them? And I also want to give you hope this morning because let's be honest, a big part of you feels like Zacchaeus, right? You have a habit in your life that is immature, in some sense wretched. And you'd hope by 2018 you'd change that, but it hasn't changed yet. I want to give you hope in the transformative power of Jesus Christ. It was his power that changed Zach. It wasn't a power of the will thing. The Christ-centeredness to this Zacchaeus story that I don't want you to miss. Zacchaeus was beyond self-renovation. This was a fixer-upper, one of those shows where people came from the outside. They redid the frame of Zacchaeus. Jesus in the Spirit redid the brickwork on the exterior and totally transformed him, but it wasn't a self-help thing. Jesus Christ did it himself. And that should encourage you. You're not a contractor on your own project here. God is going to do the work. You don't have to do it all yourself. You can call out to him to change you. And he does it by his Spirit through his Word. So as we confess that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost today, I want you to know that he often targets outcasts, people you're not naturally drawn to. These people might surprise you, and you might be astounded by the change he does in yourself this year. Well, let's keep looking here. Although God surprises us and who he's going to seek and save, those who become saved, Afterwards, they do have a certain set of characteristics. In other words, being saved has a rhythm. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, and actually being saved, living saved, has a certain rhythm to it. Look at verse 8. Now, we can't be sure, but sometime later, Jesus is having a conversation with Zacchaeus, and we get the feeling that people are looking on. In verse 8, we see this. And Zacchaeus stood... And he said to the Lord, 
Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, verse 9, Today salvation has come to this house. Since Zacchaeus also is the son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. We're not given the whole story here, but somewhere along the line, Zacchaeus has turned and he's given his life to Jesus. He's been converted. We know this because Jesus said salvation has come to this house today. Zacchaeus has believed as a true son of Abraham should. And Jesus recognizes that. And the point of the story, the reason we don't have all the details, the point of the story is that Jesus sought and he brought this man to God and now Zacchaeus' life is going to have a certain flavor to it. Right? First note his generosity. That's one flavor of someone who is being saved. Living saved by God. He's very generous here. In his society, giving 20% of your possessions to the poor was considered really generous. Anything more than that was considered a little foolish, not prudent. He gives half. He gives half of his stuff away. From greed to generosity. That's what being transformed by Jesus does to a heart. That's what makes people notice Christ and say, ah, something's different here. Why would you give all that stuff up, Zacchaeus? He found something worth more. He's holding on loosely to his material things. You can see the visible marks of his heart changed. And notice the stark contrast here between Zacchaeus and the rich young ruler from last week in the gospel. You knew Zacchaeus was short, but now he proves to be so small that he can fit through the eye of a needle. You see, He is now in the kingdom of God. Jesus said it's going to take some type of radical change here. And you see this. This is how he enters God's kingdom. Writer Dan Olson was writing about C.S. Lewis's reaction to reading these types of stories in the gospel. And Dan Olson said this. Uh, This is what he's quoting C.S. Lewis. He said, I don't believe that one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. After reading the Jesus stories, that's what he comes up with. The only safe rule is we need to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard of common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say that our expenditures are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charities exclude them. In other words, you're so generous that it's a focal point of your life in Jesus Christ. Another way to look at this issue is to look at it negatively. What happens if you're not Generous. Jesus addressed that actually. Earlier, Luke 16, 11, Jesus said, If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? Commenting on this passage, writer Ray Ortland said this, 
we're accustomed to the biblical message that we should trust God, right? But here's another message, smaller and subordinate, but still important category, that God would trust us. In other words, if we are not faithful with money, which is unrighteous and not worth much, who will entrust to us the true riches of spiritual wealth and power? In other words, if we can't handle cheap things wisely, why would God put far more precious things into our hands? You know, I was watching earlier as the children lined up, crowded in front of the stage, and I was praying to God as they were being introduced. And I had the question of myself. I'm asking God to spiritually bless these little children. My own children I pray for. And yet I wonder if God trusts me. Because he sees how I handle my own finances. I wonder what blessings you're missing by foregoing generosity. Back to Zacchaeus. Here's something else to notice. Note his concern from, for writing what is wrong. He gets saved. He comes to Jesus. His worldview shifts. He's all of a sudden concerned for writing in his society what is wrong. An early social justice warrior. That's Zacchaeus. Except interestingly enough, the people in his society have been directly cheated by him, right? He's cheating them as his role in the government. He plays a crucial role in systemic injustice. And he repents of this. He repents by seeking not only to right the wrong, but he goes overboard in showing grace to other people. It raises the question, how do your individual actions impact the systemic injustices in our society? What are you doing as an individual that feeds into a corporate injustice that we all know exists? Luke's going to give us another parable next in the text. And it also feeds into this idea that being saved has a rhythm here. It's going to begin in verse 12. And parables are tricky. So I'll kind of explain it to you before we read it. And then we'll read it. Parables are representative stories. And in this one, though it's not a one-to-one -one correspondence, there's a nobleman character, and he loosely illustrates Jesus. Okay, So when you read about the nobleman that's loosely supposed to be Jesus, there are citizens. Those represent people who reject Christ. And then there are servants, the third character in the story I'm about to read, the servants, and they are the people who follow Jesus. They are the people in the kingdom, most like many of us. So let's read the story here and see how Jesus teaches us. Jesus told the story. He said, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. So picture this, this noble lord going away to get a kingdom. Before he goes, he calls ten of his servants and he gave them ten minas. That's a piece of money. Where I'm from, we might say minners. But this is minas. This is a piece of money. He gives everybody some money, his servants. And he says, use this and engage in business until I come. In other words, Christ has left us on earth to do the business of the kingdom. 
We see that in Zacchaeus' response. Now look at how these servants in the parable live until the king returns. Look at verse 15. When he returned, the king, he gets back from receiving his kingdom, he orders all of his servants who he had given money to to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Now look at this, verse 16. The first guy comes back to him, the first servant, and he says, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. He invested it. He used it somehow to make money. Verse 17. And the nobleman said, Well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. Then the second servant comes up. And he says, Lord, your mina has, has made five minas. And so Jesus, the nobleman character, says, Good, you're to be over five cities. You've been busy doing the business of the kingdom. I will bless you with more responsibility. The first two servants here symbolize disciples who enjoy using their gifts to serve the kingdom. There's a rhythm here in being saved, a diligent ministry for Christ. But the third servant is out of sync. Instead of using his gift, he was overcome by fear and he did nothing. Look in verse 20. The third servant comes and he says, Lord, here's your mina back. I kept it laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you were a severe man. Now earlier we heard about the nobleman. He's not really severe, but this guy doesn't know him. Right? He showed that he wasn't severe because he graciously gave to the people doing his business. But this guy didn't know him. He said, you take what you didn't deposit and you reap what you didn't sow. And so the nobleman says back to him, I'm going to condemn you with your own words, wicked servant. So you say that you knew I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Verse 23, why then did you put my money in the bank? Why didn't you put it in the bank? And at my coming, I at least collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And everybody said, Lord, he's already got ten minas. And the nobleman said, I tell you, to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is a strong reminder that Christ has expected rhythms of those in the kingdom. Sacrifice and service. Service and sacrifice. That's the way the kingdom flows. The same article that I mentioned earlier, Don Olson shared the story of John Wesley. You may know John Wesley's famous, prolific preacher in the 1700s. He's also a writer, evangelist, activist for Christ. I didn't know this, but his book sales alone, John Wesley's, in his lifetime, Gained enough money that would be, uh, in today's money, it would be uh, a ton of money, like $10 million of book sales alone. And yet, John Wesley died penniless, having given all of his resources to the poor, to Christian causes, to the ministry of others. His time, his talent, his treasure were all radically laid on the altar of the kingdom. John Wesley actually preached a sermon on Luke 16. And listen to this picture he gives as a life of sacrifice and service. 
Listen to what John Wesley says. It's written in the language of 1700. But you'll get the picture. He says, gain all you can without hurting either yourself or your neighbor in soul or body by applying hitherto with unintermitted diligence and with all the understanding which God has given you and save all you can by cutting off every expense which serves only to indulge foolish desire to gratify either the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eye, the pride of life, waste nothing living or dying on sin or folly, whether for yourself or for your children, and then give all you can. Or in other words, give all you have to God. Do not stint yourself to this or to that proportion. Render unto God not a tenth, not a third, not a half, but all that is God's, be it more or less by employing all on yourself, your household, the household of faith, and all mankind in such a manner that you may give a good account of your stewardship when ye can no longer be stewards. People don't talk that way anymore. We don't even have categories for gaining all you can, saving it, and giving it all away. I think Jesus would like this vision, though. It's a huge kingdom-sized vision. Being saved has the rhythm of sacrifice and service. And another word remains about Jesus here seeking, saving the lost. We've seen how he targets surprising people for salvation. We've seen how salvation yields a life of sacrifice and service finally. But this text will sober you up. Because the final call from the text is for us to all remember what God is saving us from. Okay? What God is saving us from. From last December, December 14th, at the age of 78, God called home R.C. Sproul, apologist, Christian teacher. Back in the day when I was in college, man, he was a life preserver. I would read his books, loved it. He has one famous story. He was a professor on the, the campus of Temple University in the 60s. And he has a story when he was on break from teaching and he was walking from building to building, and he's walking to his building, and a guy that he didn't know comes and he stops him, and blocks his path awkwardly, and then the guy starts sharing Jesus with R.C. Sproul. <laughs> now, it's always awkward. If you've ever shared your faith, you've probably shared it with someone who's already a Christian before, and that's always like, ha, ha, I've done that before, but I've never shared Jesus to R.C. Sproul. <laughs> but this guy does it, and he starts the conversation by saying, excuse me, R.C. Sproul, excuse me, are you saved? And R.C. Sproul's surprised, and he says, saved from what? And the guy stumbles. He doesn't know what he means by his own question. He goes on to say something, ah, do you love Jesus? But it stuck with R.C. Sproul. Because he said, here's a faithful guy who loves me enough to share his faith, but he doesn't know what God saves us from. And in this parable, Jesus is not unclear. Jesus is crystal clear. Look at verse 14. Remember, the citizens represent unbelievers. Verse 14. But the nobleman's citizens hated him. And they sent word after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. That's the cry 
of every lost heart is we don't want this man to reign over us. Not everyone is going to respond to Jesus like Zacchaeus. In fact, many will hate the coming king. And for them, God stores up wrath. Look at verse 27. It's a brutal verse. It's the way he ends the story. The nobleman in the story says, but as for these enemies of mine, who are the enemies? They're the people who say, we don't want you to rule over us. We hate the king. But as for these enemies of mine, verse 27, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. That's tough language. We don't like to think about God is violent in any way or wrathful in any way. But the fact is, from this story, we learn that Jesus came to save sinners from God Himself. Don't miss that. Jesus came to save sinners from God Himself. When Adam fell, he didn't just break peace with God. Shalom. He also earned the justice of God. Directly targeted at all of those who will cry in their creator's face. I don't want you to reign over me. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. He says, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And wait for the son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Only Jesus can protect us from God's coming wrath. We had the snow dump last week. Praise God for that. I went out there with my kids. And the name of the game in my house, I have six kids, it's all about moisture protection, right? Because when you're managing that many out there and one of them gets wet, then we have to go back because they're going to start freezing and you have to leave the sledding hill, go all the way back home. So I'm always worried about them getting soaked because the whole team has to quit. And I'm out there and we're playing, we're snowmaning, we're sledding. It's a good time. And I look over and one of my kids, I can't see him because he's completely buried in the snow except for his face. And I think to myself, self, this guy's a goner. We're, we're done in three minutes because he's going to be dripping. And the kids keep playing. They dump snow on him. Ha, ha, ha. Sure enough, two or three minutes later, he's up. He's shaking off. And I'm like, all right, let's go. And he's like, no, I am completely dry. And he proceeds to show off this weird kind of ski jacket fabric that he's got that apparently he can lay under all of the snow and the cold and the burn can be placated by the fabric. And that's what Jesus promises to do to all those who trust. Something has got to reflect the anger, the wrath of God. It's very personal. And the scriptures say only Jesus can do this. He's the only buffer from the just Vengeance and wrath of a personal God. The aforementioned R.C. Sproul 
wrote on this. He wrote very carefully this quote. Sproul said, Ultimately, Jesus died to save us from the wrath of God. We simply can't understand the teaching and the preaching of Jesus apart from this. For he constantly warned people that the whole world someday would come under divine judgment. What he's saying is you can't read Luke or any other part of the Gospels and leave this out. Jesus is warning judgment is coming. Jesus is warning judgment is coming. Here are a few of his warnings concerning judgment. He said, I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of what? The judgment. Jesus said that in Matthew 5. I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it when? On the day of judgment, Matthew 12, 36. Jesus' theology was a crisis theology. The Greek word crisis means judgment. And the crisis of which Jesus preached was the crisis of an impending judgment of the world at which point God is going to pour out His wrath against the unredeemed, the ungodly, and the impenitent. The only hope of escape from that outpouring of wrath is to be covered by the atonement of Christ. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a holy God who is wrathful. Therefore, Christ's supreme achievement on the cross was that he placated the wrath of God which would burn against us were we not covered by the sacrifice of Jesus. If you're here today as someone who is not a follower of Jesus, I want you to know we're so happy you came. You're our guest. We love you. But I must tell you straight up, according to the scriptures, pain is coming. There's going to be a reckoning. Because according to Jesus, if you're not a friend of God, you're an enemy. And His holy justice demands that His enemies are struck down. That's not good news for you, but what is good news is that Jesus came for all who would believe in Him as a substitute, a wrath substitute. He died on behalf of everyone who will cry out to Him, I do want you to reign over me. I messed up. I'm a wretch. You're royalty. I want to be there. I want you. For all of those, Jesus saves from the wrath of God. And I just want to call you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, come to Him. There's room at the cross for all who call out to Jesus. And fellow disciples, you who are here as members of TCC, who in your life do you call friend, but God calls enemy? Who in your life do you call friend, but God calls enemy? Is it your boss or your subordinate? Your in-laws? How about the dad buddy of yours from your son's basketball team? Or the mom from your daughter's playgroup? Or your adult son? Would God have you commit 15 minutes a day this week to praying for them? Calling out to God to save them? Does God want you to tell them, perhaps repetitively, of the coming judgment? Ought you to fast, pleading for God to save all of His people? Can you share this week the reality of God's rescue and the impending judgment 
coming to all of those who reject Him. And so today we've seen how Jesus came to seek and to save the lost in Luke. Learning that those whom Jesus targets might surprise you. Salvation in Christ has a rhythm of service and sacrifice. And that your friends must know from what and from whom you are saved. Let's pray together. God, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your word today. Help us to see the type of reality that has Jesus seeking and saving the lost. To turn us into generous Christians who love social justice, who love to warn people of the coming judgment. God, now as we bow before you, I pray that your spirit does a mighty work. In Jesus' name, amen.